everybody. You're listening to The Real Movies Podcast. I'm Rob Carmack. This is John Rhodes. How's everybody out there? This is a podcast about documentaries. This is episode seven. Very excited about this one. We're talking about Pearl Jam 20. When you sit in your room playing guitar, you don't have to worry about being successful. It's, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It's kind of an unlikely group of people to be playing together. We made it to the ocean that is smoking tree. The wind rose up, set him down on his If we wanted to be more like Zeppelin, we didn't want to be locked into like a real specific style. Uh, this is one of the, this is the first rock doc that we've done. Yes. Um, we have, we've done some serious documentaries and some funny documentaries and, um, some that just explore, you know, culture and human life and, um, political aspects or social aspects. And this is our first one about, uh, a band. Yes. Uh, and this is a really cool genre within the world of documentaries, the rock doc. This just highlights the, the band Pearl Jam and their 20 years of existence from their humble start in, uh, in Seattle, uh, coming off of uh, Mother Love Bone, the, kind of the end of Mother Love Bone, where several of them came from, and then into Pearl Jam. Uh, Temple of the Dog. Yes. Then Mookie Blaylock. Oh, yeah. And then Pearl <laughs> yes. Jam. We'll get into yes. the Mookie Blaylock backstory. Yes. And then into Pearl Jam, and which they have been known for for the last 20 years. And that just who they are as a band and their road to to what I consider greatness. I think so. Well, and, I think, and, and the film is made by iconic director Cameron Crowe, who, who is known for Jerry Maguire and um, Almost Famous, which is one of my favorite movies. And, and, and singles, which is where he put he put Eddie Vedder in that movie, which is kind yes. of a crappy movie from the from the nineties um, about the Seattle scene, and uh, the guys from Pearl Jam were featured throughout the movie as actors. Yeah, and that was and, and that really goes to show you Cameron Crowe. And if you're familiar with any of his works, but specifically Almost Famous and also the movie Elizabeth Town, which was not as successful as a lot of his other movies. <laughs> But Cameron Crowe is a music lover, clearly, and you 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 get from the very in, like entering into this documentary, Cameron Crowe is approaching this not as a journalist but as a fan, and yeah. so that that both plays the positives and the negatives, which we will get to. But it but like you, I mean, John, you just did a great job of just setting this up, which is this is a documentary about the rise and the evolution of the band Pearl Jam coming out of Seattle in the early nineties. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm really interested because I, I will be upfront with everybody. I like music. I am not near as passionate about music as my co-host Rob Carmack. And I, yeah, and I will <laughs> say I get a lot of what I listen to from Rob because I trust his taste. Um, That's very I, kind of you. I, I, I read your blog and. Uh, I love your uh, Friday music breaks, and so I will look at those, and I'll kind of listen to the bands that you suggest. So I'm, I'm really interested and excited about doing this specific podcast with you. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, and speaking of the Friday music breaks, I, this movie inspired me. Uh, very soon, I'm going to do Pearl Jam 10. Like, I, I, sometimes I'll do an album, 
instead okay. of a, a full band. Yeah. And that album, that fir- the very first Pearl Jam album, Tent, in my opinion, is one of the great albums to come out of the 90s. And so I, I love that we were able to sort of explore that and see sort of the early origins of, of how that album came to be. I, uh, just up front, I had a lot of fun watching this documentary because, the, and I'll even say, this is my favorite kind of documentary. I, I've enjoyed most of the docs we've watched. This, and not specifically Pearl Jam 20, but documentaries about how music exists and how it happens and how it influences both the musicians and culture at large. I love that kind of, I, I would watch, if, if it was just me just sitting in my house, I would watch this kind of documentary once a week. I, I, I love this. And that's awesome. And, and it was, it, as, a, as a fan, as someone who grew up listening to this kind of music, the 90s kind of defined me as, as a music lover. I lo- and, and really, Pearl Jam is my favorite Seattle band from that time, easily. But they're not my favorite 90s band overall. I, I, I responded a lot more in, in that era to bands like Counting Crows, R.E.M., Collective Soul. But I did I, I did love Pearl. I liked Pearl Jam a lot. And specifically, I loved the, the album 10. Yeah, I, I mean, I really did. In the 90s, I was between 10 and 20 years old. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of your musical identity is kind of shaped between when you're 10 and 20 years old. I mean, that's... That will kind of frame a lot of what you like. And I do associate a lot with that that grunge rock. I I really like that grunge rock that came out of the Seattle scene. I I love Pearl Jam. Uh, I love Nirvana, Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden. They spoke to me as that early kind of rebellious teenager. I wasn't that rebellious, but that, that kind of attitude... I loved like that that spoke to me as who I was and where I was I do I'm really glad that when we chose a musical documentary that this is the one we chose this was a good first rockumentary I, yeah. I think because there's so much because I, like you said we both grew up in the 90s like that was our adolescence yes which in Pearl Jam was four people who were going through adolescence during the 90s specifically the albums 10 and Verses and Vitalogy all three of those albums were very teen angsty probably for people a little bit older than us like for me, yeah. probably people who are about three or four years ahead of me. But I, I just I really liked those songs and that music. And, and Eddie Vedder's voice is so iconic and memorable. And I, this documentary, I love. I really like to hear how bands began. You know, especially yeah. when it's not just a bunch of guys in the garage and they they. It, I mean, this band took a long time to evolve, and you you learn that they evolved with the Seattle grunge rock scene like you, you hear about this this guy the Seattle musician who died named Andrew Wood who sort of becomes like this this dead iconic almost like the Elvis of Seattle like everybody yeah. remembers this guy as a local legend and he's the guy who sort of started the grunge movement that birthed Nirvana and Pearl Jam or at least that's what they say now yeah. I don't know if then they would have said that but well, I mean I think that everybody kind of held him in pretty high esteem definitely uh, and I think that I, I don't know you know had he had he lived and had he had a longer life I mean, everybody was predicting that this guy was going to be huge. Yeah. And and what he did. And so when he died at an early age, I know that, that it's pretty it's pretty normal to see drug and alcohol abuse in, in some of these bands. But his death scared a lot of these guys away from going really hardcore into that scene. Uh, and really made them focus on the music and the art, not on the... You know the other side, yeah. The, the parties and the 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 crazy drug scene and that kind of stuff because yeah. they didn't want to see what happened to him happen to them, and so they they really dug in for the for the art. Not to say that these guys 
didn't ever participate in any of that, but they knew to stay away from it for the most part. Yeah, and, and you can definitely see that there is an awareness in grunge rock from that time, an awareness of human mortality. There are a lot of, specifically in Nirvana, you, you have you have a lot of discussion sort of of the mortality of humanity, almost nihilistic in we're all going to die. You yeah. know, it's very dark. And I wonder how much of that was sort of them reflecting on the death of Andrew Wood, you know, or right. sort of subconsciously dealing with that. Um, because all of those bands, specifically Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and even probably Alice in Chains and Soundgarden to a lesser extent, dealt a lot with the concept of early mortality. Yeah. And, I mean, of course, everybody knows, like, later on, Kurt Cobain would basically yes. take his own life. And, and so, so there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of darkness that came out of, out of that grunge scene. But, but yeah, you're right. I, I think Andrew was sort of the, the spark that lit the fire for, for that movement. A fan. I don't want to become something that I despised as a kid. American rock bands, they break up. And Pearl Jam managed to stay together. I was not, um, I never got to see any of these kind of bands in concert. I, I grew up in a, in a small West Texas town that... Um, only got country singers to come to it, and uh, my parents would never have let me travel to Dallas to see anybody that came through. And so... Pearl Jam never made it to Abilene? Yeah, no, Pearl Jam never showed up at the Coliseum in Abilene, uh, sadly. But, (laughs) um, you know, I I was kind of shocked at... I, I got to see some of those early concerts, and... You know, there's some things that at concerts that I think people get people get really into that I don't get into as much. People are like, "Oh, the light show," and I'm like, "It's a it's a light show. It's it's a glorified flashlight." You know, like I don't I don't think about that kind of stuff as 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 important as some other thing. One of the things that I was shocked and going, "Man, if I was in the audience, what would like that would have blown my mind when Eddie Vedder would continually." climb up on the lighting grid that was that amazing is, that is 50 feet in the air and he would just start swinging from the lighting grid like, like a gymnast yes yeah. like he was just a gymnast and he's just swinging back and forth from them no harness no nothing and then <laughs> just stage dive from it he would just swing out into the audience and pray that they caught him that was amazing well and I love because I'm sure to the audience it was like man this is a part of the show this is a great re- like Staged kind of thing, but you interview members of the band, and Mike McCready is like, I thought he was gonna die every night. I was yes. terrified. I mean, I, I mean, he would just climb these rafters like I don't even know. I mean, it was just like I hate to use the term monkey, but I mean, it looks like he's just this little monkey that climbs up in the top of these rafters and is just just swinging around playing up there, and it is shocking. <laughs> I mean, like I don't know what he was thinking or what he was doing, but. Man, it, it made for some really good entertainment. Young Eddie Vedder to me seems like a lunatic. You know, I mean, he kind of yeah. he seems so chill and mellow now. But like, you look at interviews of him like early on in the like the Monkey Bars episodes at every show. I think it's a miracle he outlived Kurt Cobain. No honestly, kidding. I mean, yeah. he's, he's he really seems like a like an insane person. I was surprised that he was the last person to join Pearl Jam. Like to me, it always seemed. I guess because you always imagine the lead singer being sort of the. The, the early parent of every band. But what I, what I never realized, Eddie Vedder was the last piece of that puzzle. Yeah. And that, that was really interesting to me, too, because Eddie Vedder 
later on became, you know, the single face of Pearl Jam. In fact, most people, other than Eddie Vedder, probably can't even name another member of Pearl Jam. Right. Unless and, they've seen this documentary. Well, and, and the thing that I couldn't have, but I didn't know Jeff Emmett was the, the leader of this band mm-hmm. until there was kind of a switch in, in partway through their career, and they, they literally label it, label it a, a power struggle in which Eddie Vedder gains power from Jeff. Like, I mean, and they don't get too much into that, but the terms that they're using and how they talk about it as a shift in power and how the power went to Eddie and and left Jeff, you know that there there was some serious, like, arguments and fights. And it tries to be a fairly upbeat documentary about Pearl Jam. It's not a real, you know, scathing... Oh, look at what look at what they were doing, kind of thing. I mean, not, it, not at all. No, it one hundred percent paints them in the light of they were awesome and successful, and it doesn't ever really. It, it makes mention to a couple of times about where they thought they might break up, but it doesn't do that much. No, in fact, well, I, I was gonna get into this when we get into the negatives, but to me, that's one of the great te- great drawbacks of this movie is that. Cameron Crowe is such a fan, and I, I heard a rumor. I don't know how true this is. I heard a rumor that the band got final cut. So, oh, yeah. so it's not even approached as any sort of like journalistic. It really is like if you want to see what it looks like for Cameron Crowe to have his lips planted on Eddie Vedder's butt cheeks for two yeah. hours, you just got to watch this documentary. Because and and to me, I kept thinking there's so many angles that I wish I wish there were so many questions you were answering. And one of those was, what was it like to be in that power struggle? Like how yeah. how did Eddie get that much? power and I'm fine with it I think Pearl Jam's a good band I'm, a, I'm an Eddie Vedder fan no doubt but at the same time I want that's that to me is the appeal of one of these movies is that show me the struggle tell me tell me what they what was hard about that because yeah. they really don't no they don't get into that at all and you you do lack for some I mean you do want for some of that you want there to be tension you want there to be I guess the antagonist would be the antagonist of a story has to be there to make the protagonist come out victorious and they kind of pass over all of the conflict that happened yeah. within the band. And instead they use outside forces as the antagonist. The yeah. antagonist is Kurt Cobain talking negatively, uh, Andrew Wood being dying early. Yeah. You talk about um, the, the big feud with Ticketmaster. Yeah. The Ticketmaster becomes an antagonist and then you have the Grammys becoming an antagonist. You know, and so you have basically Pearl Jam versus the larger establishment but you never had Pearl Jam internally struggling. In, yeah. the, in this documentary, which is ridiculous because you know that they did. Yeah, and absolutely. Because they hit towards it, but then they back off. And, and they even talk about how there is one part where they say Pearl Jam is doing the, the 10 concert. Three of the guys, I think it's Jeff and Stone and maybe McCready, are on the plane. Like are on the, the, the actual... Um, the tour plane. The tour plane. And Eddie Vedder... And whoever their drummer is at the time, <laughs> yeah, that was a whole other the, the revolving show. drummer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, got in a van. They wanted to go old school and road trip it, and so that was—I mean—that was one thing that I found interesting that they didn't really, they didn't dive too much into, but they kind of suggested it. I mean, they—they they said some things about it. Was that Eddie Vedder really wanted to be the kind of? Like, let's get in a van and let's play these little clubs and let's go town to town and do that kind of thing. Yeah. And Pearl Jam 
got way bigger than that way before they ever had to do that. They blew up instantly, yeah. which you can tell in the interviews that, that really upset Eddie Vedder. He, yeah. he didn't want to be, according to all sources involved, he didn't want to be one of these like overnight successes. He said, in, in the words of the documentary, he wanted to pay his dues. He wanted yeah. to, to, to rise up naturally through clubs and things like that. Yeah, and, and they, they do have this struggle with your art and becoming mainstream. And I was thinking, you know, I, I kind of thought about that. Well, one... I'm really, really glad they went mainstream <laughs> because yeah. had they not gone mainstream, I would have never heard about them in Abilene, Texas. But this idea that, you know, going mainstream is bad. It's a double-edged sword to me. Like, I understand you want your art and you want people that really love it, and then you're going to have bandwagon fans, but sometimes you need those bandwagon fans. And sometimes I really think 90s grunge rock was the voice of a good part of a generation. Their voice was the voice of kind of this generation that was going on in the 90s when everybody has the same ideas as you and you express them so well through music, it's not going to just stay on a, a micro level. It's going to blow up. Well, and, and they also talk about music videos is a big way to get your, your name out. And they talk, they, they tell you a little bit about how they really resisted the music video trend. In fact, it was one of the more interesting parts of the film, I thought, was you've got Eddie Vedder being interviewed about how they did one music video, but it was a live video. Yeah. And then the, I don't even remember who the interviewer was. It was some talk show. And they asked him, so you can't ever see yourself just doing a, a regular music video? And he starts making, like, what, I'm going to lip sync to, like, some sort of conceptual vision of my song. <laughs> Cut to them shooting the music video for Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> this because there was kind of a feud between them and Nirvana. Yeah. You know, I wonder how much of that and when in the timeline the music video that I remember the most from the 90s is Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. It's very memorable. I mean, it is my favorite music video and that thing blew up and was on MTV all the time. If the person that you are kind of competing with makes this incredibly awesome video and it's conceptual and it gets no like nobody's sitting there going nirvana you bunch of sellouts like nobody was doing that everybody was like wow that was an awesome video yeah right at that point pearl jam and they don't ever say this probably gets in their head oh well if they're gonna do it we're gonna do it well yeah you, I mean, Kirk, you can tell like they have a lot of respect for what kurt cobain thinks about them in fact when, when he starts bagging them on TV, you can kind of tell, like, that hurt them. Yeah. In fact, you, you, they even say, I forget which, I think it was Stone, he said, if, if Kurt hadn't gone and, like, bad-mouthed us like that, we probably would not have gotten better, because that challenged us in a way that yeah. we weren't prepared for. So, they, not only did they hear it, they responded to it in the most healthy way possible, by challenging themselves and becoming better artists. Yeah. So absolutely, they cared what Kurt Cobain thought. So when Kurt Cobain starts doing videos, all of a sudden maybe that's a possibility. Yeah, they have to make videos too. Yeah. So I mean, I think in you know, I mean, I think that's one of those things that people that do documentaries, people that make documentaries, and they they do that all the time. They love to they love to show somebody saying, "I will never do X, Y, or Z," and then turn around in the next clip show them doing exactly what they said they'll never do. Which probably was one of the closest parts to being negative about Pearl Jam the yes. documentary ever gets, is that 
Eddie said at one point he didn't want to do a video, and then later they did a video. Yeah. And, but they, they didn't do many. Like, really, yeah. you, you'd be hard-pressed to think of very many memorable Pearl Jam music videos from right. the 90s, because they just aren't there. I, I liked a lot about that. But yeah, I thought, I thought one of the more interesting parts was how they responded to the critique from Kurt Cobain. And then it was interesting to come back later and find out that they sort of reconciled and that Eddie and, and Kurt sort of became, not friends, but friendly. Yeah, I mean, they, they developed a mutual respect for each other and what they did. Kurt Cobain even says, look, he, he's a nice guy. Yeah. He, he's... He's a genuinely nice guy. It was that was interesting. The, the relationship between Pearl Jam and the other musicians from that time and place, like Chris Cornell, apparently is a big. And, and you see a lot of there's a lot of overlap between Soundgarden yes. and Pearl Jam. So much so that to this day, the former drummer from Soundgarden is the drummer for Pearl Jam. Because and I thought I'd never seen the video of. Eddie Vedder going out to rescue a drummer from, I guess, the Loch Ness, or from, like, Swamp Thing, or whatever yeah. that was. Oh, no, another drummer. And they, so they go through, like, this whole montage of former Pearl Jam drummers, and they compare it to Spinal Tap. Yeah. And rightly so, because they they've had, like, probably half a dozen yeah. drummers. And they're going through labeling off so fast, I tried to write them down, and I was like, holy cow, I can't keep up with all this. Like, I have to, like, rewind it and go back. Yeah, you gotta go but, to Wikipedia and look at the list yeah. of the former drummers. <laughs> they're just, like, listing all of these people off, and, well, he didn't work out, and well, he didn't want to tour, and he had something else going on in his life. And getting the job as drummer of Pearl Jam did not mean you had job security. No, not at, <laughs> at all. all. And they kept saying, well, and that didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the more interesting parts of, of the film, I thought, was when they went into the Ticketmaster feud. That was when, in the film, the sp- scene is specifically when they went before Congress and they testified. And, and you even see, and I love that Cameron Crowe shows this, even Congress is sucking up to Pearl Jam. They're like, yeah. my kids love your music. I, <laughs> and, and none of them know who they are. No. And, and they're there and they're dressed and, you know, they're kind of rocker clothes. They didn't get, they didn't really like, you know, I mean, they've got the bandanas on and the everything. Earrings and the earrings the and clothes, so it's yeah. not as though they, they dressed in suits and ties and to present to Congress, which is probably fine. I mean... Well, they went as Pearl Jam. Yeah, you're, you're not going to change who you are, but, um, yeah, I mean, that was a, that was really interesting. As somebody that goes to a lot of concerts, do you, do you kind of side with Pearl Jam in their... Do you feel like Ticketmaster has an unfair hold? Absolutely. Or, okay. I, I have always hated Ticketmaster, and the only reason... And the reason is the same as Pearl Jam's reason, is that you, you have no other choice. It is the very definition of a, of a monopoly. If you want to buy tickets to an event, nine times out of ten, you have to go through Ticketmaster. And when you're not going through Ticketmaster, you're either going through another, like a, a second-tier vendor like StubHub who sells previously sold Ticketmaster tickets, right. or you're buying directly out from the venue. And and other otherwise, if you're buying... And this is before people could go online and buy tickets. It used to be you had to call Ticketmaster, and there was all kinds of service charges tacked up. Like, you had to buy the ticket at face value, but you had to pay the service charge, you had to pay the mailing fee, you had to pay the handling fee. And so, like, $20 concert tickets all of a sudden are like $45. And and Pearl Jam's whole thing is our fans aren't people who can just throw out 50 bucks ahead a to go to a show. Our fans are college kids and high school kids. We want to make our shows accessible. I've, I've never been to a Pearl Jam concert, but I kind of wonder if right now, getting a hold of a Pearl Jam ticket is more than $50. I guarantee you it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, that is kind of funny that they're on, on camera. They even say, they say 30 bucks. They're like, not everybody can pay $30 for a concert ticket. And I just laugh because now I'm thinking, if Pearl Jam showed up to perform at the AAC 
in Dallas, you would not get even close to the door for $30. Like, okay, I'm looking at it right now. Eddie Vedder, not Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder is coming to Dallas. To, he's going to be playing the music hall at Fair Park at the end of April. Tickets? $78. No kidding. Like, I mean, you know, and, and at this point, they're kind of getting up to that iconic stage because I don't know how many of the kids right now, like there's not probably a, not a ton of the teenagers who are coming out going, I'm this, I'm a huge fan of Pearl Jam. There, there are probably some, but their demographic is with us. And in the 30 to you know, 45-year-old. Yeah, late range. Gen Xers, early uh, yeah. next generation after that. Yeah, yeah, and and so, <laughs> you know, they're the ones that they're going to go see Pearl Jam and they're going to spend the money and they have enough money. And so I could easily see them charging, you know, for a good seat, 150 bucks. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, and then if you want to buy it through a scalper side, it's going to be yeah. even more than that. <laughs> So basically, if we're going to sum up this movie, this two-hour-long Pearl Jam 20, basically you could sum it up in one sentence, which is Pearl Jam's great. Yeah, but that's that's yeah, pretty yeah. much the, the message of this film. <laughs> yes. Let's let's talk positives and negatives. Talk talk to me about positives. What what do you take away from this movie? This is, I mean, because I, I admit I'm not. It's my documentary watching. I don't watch a lot of the rock docs. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not where I spend most of my time. So. This was really educational on me to, like, learn more about a band that I really do like. It will probably cause me to watch more rock docs because of that. Um, So I think that this was a really good one for me to see because, one, I I actually do like Pearl Jam. Mm -hmm. And, and two, just, you know, it, it showed me that there are things that you learn when you watch these other than just listening to their music. And I heard some of the songs in there. One of the things is if the most popular Pearl Jam song is Daughter, right? I don't know if that, if, I mean, I think a lot of people would choose Jeremy uh, as probably their, their most favorite or whatever, but I really like, I really like Daughter. Daughter's your favorite? And, and yeah. And then when I heard it was originally titled Brother, it actually started making more sense to me, (laughs) calling it Brother. And I was like, man, I wish they hadn't changed that to Daughter. I know. I wish they'd have left it Brother. Like, that's better. (laughs) And so, like, that kind of thing, I I really liked. Uh, I really liked learning new little information about Yeah, this was good for like Pearl Jam trivia. Yeah, because like like one one of the interesting thing was like the the origin of how they became Pearl Jam because they were originally a band called Mookie Blaylock, which yeah. if, if you don't know who Mookie Blaylock is, he was a basketball player. He was a big like MVP basketball player during the early nineties, and apparently they changed the name of the band because apparently Mookie Blaylock didn't want to be called to be he didn't <laughs> want a band in Seattle named after him. Yes, and so they and and which I, my favorite part maybe one of my favorite like single parts of this documentary was this interview where they're saying okay so what's the significance of the number 10 because your first album's name was 10 and Eddie Vedder was like it's Mookie's number yeah (laughs) (laughs) Mookie's still associated with it whether he likes us or not (laughs) so it all comes back to Mookie yeah (laughs) I mean it is kind of funny and I didn't realize what, what 
what big basketball fans these guys were. Oh, like, yeah. These guys love basketball, which is great. I mean, I do think that it's kind of fun to see little bits of their personality besides the music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when you can humanize somebody a little bit more from rock star status to, hey, these are everyday guys. Yeah. And, you know, they all are fairly passionate. I mean, it would show them driving down the road and, you know, they would hold up the paper and be like, Bulls won again. You know, and this is right in the middle of the 90s with Jordan on the Bulls and stuff. So they make references to them being the Clippers and the Nets, who are the secondary teams uh, in their markets. That was kind of a cool thing to, to see. They have passions outside of music as well. Yeah, that they don't sit around like wearing flannel and feeling sad all the time. Yes. Like, that was, <laughs> they do get joy out of things that other people also get joy That's out of. That's right. They, they like basketball, <laughs> yes. apparently. Which, I mean, that like I was like you. I was like, I never thought of a grunge band from Seattle liking basketball. <laughs> yeah. I pretty much always thought they were they were sitting around writing sad poetry. Yeah, especially, you know, Eddie Vedder, who is notoriously short, you know, short white guy, being all about basketball. Yeah. It was kind of fun. <laughs> it was fun. And yeah, I I loved there were, there's so much I, I enjoyed about this movie. It made me reappreciate the things I like about Pearl Jam. It it shows sort of how 90s all rock took shape in Seattle and subsequently the rest of the country. I didn't know who Andrew Wood was, so that was interesting yeah. to me. There there were a lot of just little nuggets in there that I kind of gripped onto and sort of thought that's really interesting, especially when they showed the video from Temple of the Dog when they did the song Hunger Strike, which I didn't realize that was pre-Pearl Jam. I thought that was like a side project that Cornell and um, Eddie Vedder did. I didn't realize that that predated Pearl Jam. But, like, you see the video from that that they show clips from, you can just see the evolution from 80s hairband to 90s grunge. Yeah. Like, you can see it's happening right before your eyes as you watch the Temple of the Dog video and then you watch early Pearl Jam, Mookie Blaylock, like, at their second gig, it shows video from their second gig ever, they're playing alive. Yeah. Which, I, I was like, you had that in your back pocket when you first started? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No wonder you blew up. Exactly. I was like, wow, uh, one of their biggest hits is is one of their first songs. Yeah. Well, and that, that whole album, apparently, th- apparently that was just, that whole first album, they just yeah. they were just ready with it. And Holy smokes. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. Like, nobody has, nobody's that good their first try. No. And, and that is why they didn't have to play a lot of clubs. That's why they didn't have to pay their dues. Is yeah. Because the first one knocked it out of the park. That album leapfrogged them over every other band that was competing with them. They was just, you really see, they've they've earned the credit that they, they've gotten. They deserve yeah. it. I mean, the, the fact that they were able to come out of the gate with that album and those songs, unbelievable. Just so good. And the, to me, the beauty of this documentary is you really get to see them through the eyes of a fan. And Cameron Crowe clearly is a fan. I mean, he likes these yeah. guys. And yeah. you get a sense that he's clo- Like, he put them in the movie singles. Like, yes. he, 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 he's known them for a while. And so, which... Other positives for you, or...? I mean, that's, that's really the positives that I got out of it. It was... I, I, I developed a new appreciation for them, learned some new things about them, and enjoyed listening to some of their music again. And actually, today, because I watched it yesterday, uh, today, I, I had already had a Pearl Jam station on my... Um, on Pandora. Yeah. And so, I've, I've been listening to that all day, just because it kind of got me in that mood again. Yeah, I listened to Tim... Pretty much only today. Like today, all the only music I've listened to today is, is ten. That's just so good. Nice. Well, talk to me about negatives. What what do you think was taken away out of this movie? I, I think, like we said a little bit earlier, is you don't see you don't see anything negative about them. 
No. At all. I mean, you don't know if there are struggles that are not kind of self-absorbed struggles. I mean, oh my gosh, you've got a Grammy and you're upset about it. Wow, your life is hard, you know? Well, like, they show the, the um, what, what's his name from 60 Minutes, um, Andy Rooney, oh, like, yeah. complaining about Pearl Jam complaining. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I can't stand Andy Rooney anyway. So, I mean, he was in the last documentary we talked about, um, about wow, hot, hot coffee. He's making a lot of as, appearances on yes, the show. And, and I can't stand him. I think that guy... Um, well, anyway, I'm not going to say terrible things about him. Often wrong, never yes. in doubt. Yes, but um, this year, Bon Iver won a Grammy yeah. and kind of gave his speech about how, you know, people aren't represented here at the Grammys and, when you know, I, you know, was almost kind of upset, like Pearl Jam was, yeah. about winning a Grammy. And I think the biggest, you know, criticism is, look, if, if you don't want a Grammy... Don't show up and get it. Yeah, don't go to the like, Grammys. Don't don't be there. If you if you were really anti this place that gives awards for art, then don't go. Don't be a part of it at all. D- don't and, submit your album for consideration. Yeah, yeah. And and so you know that that I was kind of like really like that's that's a little that right there is the definition for you know first world problems. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I, I got a Grammy. Well, then you show, like, when, when Stone, when yes. he's in his basement, he's like, hey, look over there, it's a Grammy. Yeah, and like, I kind of feel up. like that was that was contrived. Like, <laughs> yeah. Because he was like, let's see what else we got down here in the basement. Oh, look, it's behind the water heater, a Grammy, you know? And you're just like, really? You know, grow up a little bit. Wow. If you If you don't like that, then don't do it. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to put down the Grammys and what they stand for. Plenty of people like them and like giving awards for art. Sure. You know, there's there's art competitions. There are. So if you don't like that, then don't be a part of it. To me, yeah, we already talked about some of the negative, but one one thing that I really kind of bugged me is the the movie doesn't mark time very well. Like, no. I have a really hard time, and, and a lot of these rock documentaries, you mark time based on album releases. Like, 10 came out, then we did this, then Versus, then Vitology. This movie doesn't do that. Like, yeah. I really lost lost track of where we were in time on a, a few times in this documentary. I agree. And, and the crazy thing is they'll do an interview with, like, an old interview with Pearl Jam and then they'll show you a new interview and the guys look so much older yes but you don't really have a frame of reference of is this early in their career or midway through their career um it's definitely not late in their career because they don't look anything like they do now yeah Eddie's hair is pretty much the only way you can tell when things <laughs> are, are what's as happening as it gets shorter they get older yeah and and so that was that was a problem that I had and also they don't really talk a lot about because, I mean, this movie was made in 2011, which means it should be up to date on their body of work. And it even showed album artwork from their most recent album, Backspacer, which I think is a phenomenal album. They don't talk about it at all. Like, no. none of the music. And so, to me, I felt like it was, it spent a lot of time harping on the glory days. And it doesn't really spend a lot of time talking about how these guys are still really making good music. And yeah. they're still they're still working as hard as they ever did. And so, which I, I felt, which is odd, because on the other hand, the movie's a complete puff piece. You know, yeah. all, all it does is is kiss the butts of Pearl Jam. Yeah, which... and, I, and and I know that there is... I've heard stories of Eddie Vedder's attitude. I heard a story of 
of him in the middle of a concert and somebody kind of threw a water bottle up on stage and he just walked off. Like he was literally like one song into their set and he just walked off stage and refused to come back on. See, that's the kind of story any other documentarian would have absolutely included. Yeah. And I wonder if the only reason Pearl Jam allowed Cameron Crowe to do this documentary is because he, they, there's no way he wouldn't put do any of that stuff. There. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not to go backwards, but the thing I didn't know that I kind of liked was how their relationship with Neil Young. That was and, interesting, yeah. And, and I had no idea that they had this kind of bond with Neil Young, and they went on tour with Neil Young, and, and they call him Uncle Neil, and he had such an influence within their career. And so that was fun to learn, too. They're, and, and as disrespectful as they, of they are as they are of, like, the establishment and the Grammys, they really, they're very respectful of those that came before them. They yes. really show a lot of respect to other musicians, like The Who and Neil yes. Young and even Nirvana and other, other bands that sort of, like, led the way to where yeah. they are. Like, they, they have a lot of reverence to, to the old regime. Of they, they really like the artist. They hate the critics. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a really good way to put it. And they, they hate the critics, and they hate the guy, the, the money people. Yes. The, the, the studios. The studios, the, the labels, everything, the managers, all that stuff. Yeah. Take it master more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, another, and, and again, I just can't heart, this, this, is, this continued to bother me after I watched it. In fact, the more I thought of it, the more it bothered me was I really, I, I just really wish there was a little more hard-hitting journalism there. And I, again, maybe they weren't going to let that happen. But there's a scene, one of my favorite movies of all time is Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. Cameron Crowe also wrote that movie, and then later on, ten years later, we'll go on to direct Pearl Jam 20. Right. In Almost Famous, Cameron Crowe has an older journalist played by Philip Seymour Hoffman giving a lecture to a young journalist, and he says... Don't become friends with the rock stars. They're not your friends. You need to be unmerciful and you need to be honest. And as I was watching Pearl Jam 20, and as I kept thinking about it, I kept thinking, Cameron Crowe has not taken his own advice. No. Not in any (laughs) way. He has become, if you're familiar with Almost Famous, he's become the William Miller of Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam, Stillwater, Cameron Crowe was William Miller. I mean, he has become unapologetically worshipful of his band. And a, I mean, on, on the one hand, it creates really, it, it creates a really good cinematic piece for a fan. Yes. On the other hand, it, there's not much there for somebody who's not a fan. Like, yeah. if, if you weren't a fan of Pearl Jam, would you have gotten anything at all out of this documentary? No, I would have been like, well, you know, this was. I, I would have said this is just Pearl Jam propaganda from them, you know, from them. Yeah, and, and it, it pretty much was. Yeah. And, and Pearl Jam propaganda is exactly a, the way to put it. Now, thankfully, I am a fan of Pearl Jam. Yeah. But if this were a band that I didn't like, my rating would be other completely different. Yeah. On that note. Um, I mean, as far as Rock Docs, which, you know, I haven't seen many of them, I liked it. I, I thought it was good. I would say a 7. Seven's good. I'm, I'm very close to you. I'm a 7.5. Okay. That's my rating. And and the only thing, and those negatives, are the, I was ready, really, as I was watching it, I was I was gonna give it a ten because I was just loving the music. I got sucked up. I was absorbed and man, these guys are awesome. They they've done so much for music. I love these albums that they're talking about. Better Man is one of my all time favorite songs from the nineties. Yeah, and so I, I was just I was swept away in it. But then the farther removed I got from it, the more irritated I was that I didn't really learn a lot about all the angles of being Pearl Jam. It, it yeah. was really just more about this is Pearl. Like, like I said, the main theme of the movie is Pearl Jam's great. Yeah. And and so for and because I agree with that, I'm willing to give it a seven point five. Right. So if you like Pearl Jam, you need to watch Pearl Jam twenty. If you don't like Pearl Jam, they might be able to sway you, but you might even get more upset at yeah. Pearl Jam. <laughs> you, you might gain an appreciation for and really the first thirty minutes is more interesting if, if you don't like Pearl Jam because yeah. it talks about the overall scene in Seattle. Yeah, the, I, I like that. Yeah, but the, the longer the movie goes, the more it gets into 
sucking up to Eddie Vedder. Yes. <laughs> and talking about how great an artist he is and how they've overcome adversity from every angle. You know, and, yeah. which, and all that's true, but I feel like there's a lot to be said that was never said. So yeah. I hope the other kind of documentary eventually does get made, not to bag on Pearl Jam, but just to show us the rest of the story. I, I just want to know. I want to know what the power struggle was like. So. Yeah. So 7.5 for me, 7 for you. 7 for me. Good. How can people find you? Uh, I write a blog at don'tputmetosleep.blogspot.com, and uh, you can follow us on Twitter at real at Twitter slash realmovies. Cool. You can find my blog, robcarmack.blogspot.com, where very soon I'm going to be writing about the Pearl Jam album 10. And also you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash robcarmack. Uh, you can find Pearl Jam 20 streaming on Netflix, and I assume you can probably rent it through iTunes or any yeah. other. It, it's very new. It, it did very well. So it's yeah. probably in, in a lot of different places to find. Um, next week, I'm very excited about our documentary next week. We're going to be talking about The Interrupters, yes. which you can find streaming on PBS.com. And I assume you can probably yeah. rent it. Out yeah, in yeah I think also. so. And because it's on PBS, it's, it's usually free. it's yeah, it's free. So. so. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully, if you're a Pearl Jam fan, you were able to, to reminisce and enjoy. If you're not a Pearl Jam fan, then hopefully you weren't too terribly bored with what we just talked about. Yeah. So, John, we'll see you next time. See you next week.